This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we take up the vital question, how are the Trump kids dealing with the refusal of their father to admit he lost the election? Amy Willens will comment, it's another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Don Jr., Little Eric, and Lara. But who is Lara Trump? Answers later in this hour. Also later in this hour, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about the series of five films about West Indians living in London in the 60s and 70s made by Steve McQueen, the British artist and filmmaker. It's playing now on Amazon Prime and it's called Small Axe. But first... Joe Biden got 6 million more votes than Donald Trump. So how come the Democrats did so poorly in the Senate and House elections? They won only 48 Senate seats when we were hoping for 50 or maybe even 51. And the margin in the House didn't expand. It shrank from a majority of something like 35 to a majority of something like four. It's the slimmest in a couple of decades. Harold Meyerson has been trying to figure that out. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect, and he joins us now from our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So what happened? What went wrong? Well, lots of things went wrong, including perhaps most dramatically the pre-election polls. But uh, uh, there's another way to look at this, uh, and that is that uh, Biden did uh, get 306 electoral votes and uh, exceeded Donald Trump's popular vote total by somewhere between six and seven million. But if you look at the number of House districts that Biden carried, that he carried, uh, it'll probably come out to be 223. And if you look at the number of House districts that the battered Democrats emerged from the election with, it's 222. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I'm not sure actually that there is that much difference. Uh, I suspect the House Democrats uh, will have a popular vote majority when you add up all their vote totals over the House Republicans of probably about four something million. Uh, the problem is uh, the, the way you know, single-member districts work in this country, and I'm not referring to gerrymandering, which is responsible for some of that, but it's it just where Democrats live and that they're clustered in big cities that tend to give Democrats uh, sometimes 70, 80, or even 90% of the vote, which boosts their aggregate vote total and explains why, uh, helps explain why they won states like uh, uh, Pennsylvania, thanks to Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but didn't make any gains in the legislature there and lost some congressional seats because uh, all of their districts uh, provide unneeded supermajorities uh, in, in cities. And then once you, the farther you get from the city, uh, the districts get closer and closer and eventually Republicans get a majority. Um, and, and so it's, it's partly the defects of the way our government and democracy is structured that leads to this disparity. Um, you know, we're in an era too of straight ticket voting, despite all the stories we read about uh, suburban Republicans who voted for Biden because they couldn't stand Trump, but then voted the Republican ticket below the presidential line. There are probably going to be fewer than 20 House districts out of the 435 
in which um, the voters elected a president, uh, elected a, a presidential candidate from one party and a House candidate from, from the other. Um, wow. And look at, what, look at the Senate results. Uh, Democrats picked up Senate seats in the states that Biden carried, Arizona, Colorado, and they lost Senate seats uh, that they were hopeful about in the states that uh, Biden lost, uh, Iowa, uh, Montana, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina. The only exception, really, the, the sole exception to the split ticket abolition rule uh, this year was Susan Collins, who is a known quantity uh, in a very small state. You know, if you're looking to see if there's a Democratic Susan Collins out there, well, there wasn't in this year's election. There was in 2018. Admittedly, Trump was not on the ballot. That was Sherrod Brown in, uh, in Ohio, who manages to win even when the Republicans carry uh, uh, the rest of the ticket. You know, Sherrod Brown's secret is uh, he's a known quantity committed uh, to workers across the board and gets just enough of the white blue collar vote, which is in many ways a Republican base, but responds to a really forceful advocate uh, for them nonetheless. And uh, that, that I think has some pointers for the Democrats going forward. Let me ask you about Southern California. Uh, Biden carried Orange County like Hillary did four years ago, but Democrats lost two of the Orange County seats they had flipped two years ago. Harley Ruda lost in coastal Orange County and Gil Cisneros lost in Anaheim Hills. And Democrats also lost the seat they had flipped in northern L.A. County. This was where Christy Smith was trying to get back the seat that Katie Hill had flipped in Lancaster and Palmdale all the way out to Simi Valley. Uh, that's very disheartening. What went wrong in Southern California? Well, I, I think th these results is also one uh, Republican flip in the San Joaquin Valley. I don't think anyone was really expecting these. And all of the California activists I know were busy either on ballot measures or on going to Nevada and Arizona to <laughs> yes. ensure that uh, yes. Biden would carry uh, those states. So th this kind of sneaked up on the Democrats. And I, I think it's fair to say that in 2018, there was an anti-Trump surge in the suburbs that enable the Democrats to very narrowly carry all of the districts, you the three districts you, you listed, John. And this time around, uh, there was uh, an anti-Trump surge, but also a pro-Trump surge in these districts, and, and the Republicans narrowly carried them. So, you know, I, I think th this was partly uh, something that the, the Democrats actually failed to prepare for. Um, I always thought that it would have been nice if the Democrats had had an Asian American member of Congress on their congressional candidate on their Orange County slate, since that's a particularly uh, strong and, uh, you know, rising constituency within Orange County. And the Democrats didn't. They had that option in some primary elections two years ago, did not take it. Um, and, uh, you know, they paid for that uh, this year. But, you know, look, Orange County is purple, uh, and at the macro level, it's turning blue, but not turning blue enough to uh, keep uh, the results that happened uh, in November from 
from happening, obviously. And let's note that the the by far the best Democratic <clears throat> incumbent in Orange County, uh, Katie Porter, the law professor and economics expert from Irvine, got reelected easily, and she was easily the best candidate that Democrats fielded in Orange County. Well, Katie Porter is a star. I mean, and even on the national level, she's made a real impact. She's also made a real impact going after institutions that even rank and file Republicans aren't crazy about, like banks. So uh, there's there's a, a, a bit of a, a populist lesson there. And I think there's also, frankly, a bit of charisma there, which is not transferable. The populist lessons are. Uh, enough about the past. Let's talk about the future, which, of course, means Georgia, the center of the political universe right now. Uh, Georgia, strangely, will be electing two senators in a runoff election on January 5th, which will determine the fate of all of us, since if both of them win, the Democrats will, with the vote of the vice president, will be able to get a bare majority of the Senate, and Biden's agenda has a chance of, of passing. Biden won Georgia by 12,284 votes out of 5 million. And the top, the two Republican candidates both failed to get 50 percent, which is required in Georgia to avoid a runoff. Uh, let's, in some ways, that's even more amazing than that Biden won. Neither Republican senatorial incumbent could get 50 percent in Georgia. It's it's an amazing fact. And it gives the Democrats a chance. Of course, there is another there's an explanation for why all three uh, of those results came out that way. It's Donald Trump's explanation, which is that the election was, quote, a total scam. What's the evidence that the election was a total scam in Georgia on November 5th? Uh, there isn't any. And uh, there isn't any in any of the states that Trump has made an issue of. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the interesting things about this is a slew of Trump appointees from uh, now Bill Barr at the Justice Department, Christopher Wray at the FBI, uh, his uh, own uh, federal judicial appointments in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania and the Third Circuit, uh, have all, you know, heard this out, have examined it and said there's nothing there. This is a big nothing burger. However, one of the ancillary effects of raising this issue in Georgia has been to create a split in Republican ranks where the Previously, uh, Trumpier than Trump governor, Brian Kemp, an expert at voter suppression himself when he was at state secretary of state, uh, the, the, secret the, the current secretary of state, Raffenberger, and uh, the people working there have defended the integrity uh, and validity of the vote and have therefore been attacked by Trump and by the two Republican Senate candidates. Whether this thing will continue to grow is, is unclear, but I think if the Democrats have a hope of winning, um, it would be nice if it did. Uh, a rift within Republican ranks at this juncture can only help uh, the two Democratic candidates, uh, Warnock and Ossoff. Well, the conventional wisdom is that the vote on November 3rd in Georgia and everywhere else was an anti-Trump vote. And the fact that Trump is not going to be on the ballot on January 5th for the Senate runoffs in Georgia gives the Republicans the advantage since conventionally for decades, Georgia Republicans have been able to elect their Senate uh, candidates. Uh, but the situation that you've just pointed to does create 
the possibility of Democrats doing better than conventionally because Trump is going to Georgia on Saturday. So it's still going to be about Trump. And Trump's message may very well be that Brian Kemp and the state secretary of state Raffensperger cheated him out of his election. Uh, he said he's ashamed that he endorsed Brian Kemp. And he said that the Republican secretary of state is an enemy of the people. How, how much of an effect do you think this might have on the Republican turnout? Yeah, I mean, enemy of the people. He's he's resurrecting terminology from Stalin's show trials of, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, he's killing off, you know, Bukharin again. It's, uh, we, we don't know the effect of this. Um, you know, for, for people like us, it in and of itself, it's a gratifying spectacle. But uh, some Republicans are bound by their jobs to hew to, you know, sort of basic empiricism, which has never been a, a value shared universally in the Republican Party. But, you know, there's more, there's more going on here than simply pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Georgia has been becoming uh, a purple state now for the last several election cycles, largely because of migrants from the North coming in chiefly to the greater Atlanta area. Uh, as Atlanta becomes more and more a somewhat normal American metropolitan area, such areas as, as uh, uh, the Brookings Institution, Urban Studies, whatever it is, program will tell you, are increasingly becoming a democratic, uh, you know, the democratic base. This is having a real effect on, on Georgia. It's had an effect on North Carolina, but not enough to push it into the democratic column. And it's even having an effect on Texas, where the democratic uh, percentage of the vote in presidential elections keeps going up by 2% with each successive election, meaning that by about uh, 2032, if we can just wait that long, if this progression continues, it will be a state that a Democrat can carry. You know, we've, we've always thought about Georgia as a place where the Democratic Party is a black party. This is partly because of the fantastic work of Stacey Abrams, but Stacey Abrams has this other idea. It's called the New Georgia, which involves a million Latinos and a substantial and growing body of, of Asian American and Pacific Islander voters who are also being recruited into the New Georgia coalition by both of these Democratic candidates. So a New Georgia is being born. The question is whether the birth date is going to be on January 5th. Well, and that's true of a lot of the Sun Belt. I mean, look what happened in Arizona. You know, and the Republicans' Sun Belt strategy has been their geopolitical strategy since Nixon. We, we may end up in a kind of a mega geographic switch in, the, in which the Republicans do well in increasingly non-immigrant, disproportionately white states of, of the Midwest, but Democrats, because of the racial diversity and other factors, start picking up states that had been part of the, uh, the GOP's uh, Sunbelt uh, strategies. That could be something that's, uh, that's in the offing. The times they are a changing. The coin of phrase. Harold Meyerson wrote about why the Democrats flopped in the House and Senate races. Read it at prospect.org. Harold, great to have you on the show today. Great to be here, John. Thank you.
it's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. For that, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a writer and journalist who's written a lot about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, best known for her award-winning work on Haiti. And she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, the big news this week is about another Trump, Lara. She is telling people she wants to run for the Senate for a seat in North Carolina that will open up in two years. That would make her the first Trump of the younger generation to run for office ahead, notably, of Don Jr. But our first question is, who is Lara Trump? Lara Trump is the wife of little Eric, as we like to call him on this show, Eric Trump. So, yes, she would be running for office ahead, notably, of Don Jr., and less notably, ahead of Eric, and perhaps more notably, ahead of Ivanka Trump. (laughs) It's a little bit odd, as she's a right-wing newscaster or news producer, and um, she's worked on the Trump campaign this time around. And and what does her father-in-law, the president, often say about her? I love him because he's just he just can't help himself. He said, oh, yeah, you (laughs) when he saw her at some family gathering because he just didn't remember who she was. He said that he could never pick her out of a lineup. But, you know, I would say what the heck he means about that is she looks like every other Trump female. (laughs) She has some dark hair in her long blonde hair. And, you know, she's perfect and she could be a model and he can't pick her out of the lineup. To say about your daughter-in-law, to tell your friends, I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. And he's known her for about a decade at family dinners and all sorts of stuff. She's the mother of his grandchildren. Let's not confuse her with the girlfriend of Don Jr., Kimberly Guilfoyle. She had the highest profile of the Trump women during the campaign because she was picked to give the opening an opening night speech at the Republican National Convention where she seemed to be imitating Mussolini. She was channeling him, I believe. He would be surprised to find himself channeled into the body of a wholesome uh, woman in a, a tight red dress. But indeed, she really seemed to have taken on the, um, the gestures and the, um, the screaming voice of Il Duce. there any talk uh, about... Kim, as you have often called her, running for office? I think that at this point, that may be closed off to her. In The New Yorker, Jane Mayer wrote a long and devastating piece about her and sexual harassment claims against her. You know, it's always said that she left Fox News to work on the campaign, but actually it appeared from the Jane Mayer piece that she uh, was basically uh, fired by Fox News because of these charges against her by her assistant, among others. Lurid charges, let us say. Very lurid. Not not really for a family radio show. (laughs) Let's switch the subject here to the politics in North Carolina. You may recall the Democrats had high hopes of winning the state for for Biden and winning the Senate seat. And in the end, Trump won North Carolina. 
by a smaller margin than he did four years ago, but he did win by 1.3 percentage points. But the state is seems to be trending blue, and that's going to make this Senate race in two years, currently held by a Republican who's retiring, a huge thing in America, sort of like Georgia is right now. Yes. So Lara was born in North Carolina, went to high school there, uh, went to North Carolina State in Raleigh. She's uh, not a social liberal from New York City, nor has she mixed with those people, really, unless you consider Eric Trump in some form to be a New York City social liberal, which we don't, but he is from (laughs) New York City. And may I say this as a person of New York City? He's from New York City broadly. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely put. Queens, you know. She's kind of a hard right winger, um, and she's been plugged by Newsmax, which is a network that, if you can believe it, is to the right of Fox. Um, on the campaign trail, she repeated Trump's claims about voter fraud. She hasn't tweeted much for the last few days because uh, she's joined the rest of the Trumps in going after the Dominion voting machines, and that has seemed to go nowhere. So they have nothing left to say. But mostly on Twitter, like a good uh, Trump wife, she retweets Eric, her husband, who really doesn't have much to say either. The big question for Trump's own children, for us anyway, is how are they dealing with their father's refusal to admit that he lost the election? I guess in a way there's no surprises, but run it down for us. Well, it depends how you see your political future panning out as a Trump child. So if you're one of the boys, you see your future panning out in the style of your dad. Tough fighter, never goes down, never says I lost, never, you know, accept defeat. And then they're telling him to keep fighting. While Ivanka and Jared are more like, maybe we should move on from here because they might see that they would like to have a future that doesn't include the first president of the United States, incumbent, outgoing, who refuses to concede the election. It's an astonishing thing. Uh, It's bad for the country. Um, And not that Ivanka and Jared have showed much care about that, but I think they would like to be able to hold their heads up and say, we convinced him finally to concede. Well, let's talk about Don Jr. for a minute more here. He famously has tested positive. He is in quarantine. His father is tweeting that he's going to be fine. What's Don Jr. been up to lately since he got his diagnosis of positive? Well, I think just before he got his positive diagnosis, he expressed the opinion that COVID deaths were, quote, down to almost nothing, unquote, on a day when they topped a thousand in this country. Now, to him, that may be almost nothing. That's only a thousand people dead. You need more than that, even to win Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of a down to nothing. And now he's all excited about Mike Tyson returning to boxing and he's tweeting these, you know, sportster tweets. I think he's kind of, he's been inside too long for (laughs) now. Well, it's a kind of moving on, actually, if you're looking forward to Mike Tyson's comeback. I mean, but I think that as a kid, This was a bonding experience with dad. Dad had always front seat tickets or whatever you call them to the fights. And he brought the kids. And so that he's kind of uh, harking back to that uh, heyday in their lives when they could go to the fights together, dad and kid. And Ivanka seems 
if you look at her Twitter feed and her famous Instagram page, she's kind of relentlessly upbeat. She finds happy things to post about. Well, she's a cheerful girl and she's not letting any of this defeat loser business get her down. And um, she cares a lot about the future of the planet and about women's economic equality. And she cares about so much. This is what she tweeted on Tuesday morning. Fact. Greenhouse gases generated by the United States will slide 9.2% this year, tumbling to the lowest level in at least three decades at EPA. Well, (laughs) yeah, Ivanka, that's true. But there's a reason for that. And the reason is the silver lining of the coronavirus response failure, that along with 250,000 dead and an economy that is stopped in its tracks, the reduction in travel of all of us sitting in our little quarantines along with Don Jr. uh, was actually good for the environment. As we all said at the beginning, there's one good thing that's happened here, and that is a change in carbon emissions because we can't do what we normally do. So are we glad? I guess we're glad, you know, at least we can have a silver lining, but it's not exactly what you can tweet about as though it's something the Trump administration was working on, although you could claim they were working on it because they didn't do anything to deal with the coronavirus. And now we're stuck with going back into lockdown. The um, Trump kids have to be worried about what comes next in their lives. Can Ivanka and Jared return to New York? Doesn't everybody hate them in New York? Will they ever eat lunch in that town again? First off, you must understand, everybody always hated them in New York. It, it, they had some friends, of course, and they grew up there, so they knew people. But like they, the Trump family wasn't the big popularity family in New York society, especially Manhattan society. So, and now it's much, much worse. But as Gina Belafonte said in the New York Times, you can always eat lunch again in this town. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I believe that's true. And they will... They'll come to back to New York if they come back to New York, which is a big question, but I think they will. They'll come back to New York with um, many strikes against them, like participating in an inhumane, uh, despicable administration that lies and tries to destroy American democracy. But they'll have a certain kind of exotic, noir interest. And as some restaurateur said about it, You know, first of all, I don't have, he said, in my restaurant, I don't have a red seating and a blue seating. Anyone who wants to come eat in my restaurant can come eat in my restaurant. I've had dictators, et cetera. And he said, and besides, people want to come. They want to go home and then call up their friends and say, guess who I saw at the restaurant? Ivanka and Jared. Can you believe they were out there? He said, no one's going to stop coming to my restaurant because Ivanka and Jared were there. They'll come to the restaurant because of that. And that is New York. But then there are, you know, the art openings, the galleries, the sales. Is there any New York artist who wants to be known as being bought and having work now in the home of Ivanka and Jared? Is there any gallery that is going to sell to them? This is going to end up on, you know, page six of the New York Post, and the artist will then want to boycott the gallery. And uh, I, I think they're certainly dead in the, in the art world, and that probably goes up to the Met Gala. Maybe I'm going too far here. 
you're going too far there. But social shaming is really very big now, and it's been done to a lot of less deserving people than Ivanka and Jared. So I think the art world is a place where that could happen. It is it is so desperately hard for me to imagine that in the world of fashion that could happen, that anyone has any shame in that kind of swirl. But I think they do because they want to be seen just as Hollywood people want to be seen to be doing the right thing. The fashion world, which is full of people who are sycophantic to Ivanka during this period, might turn away from her and the Met Gala might not be a place where she gets to wear her best gown. People may not want to design for her. And as someone said, I read, no one's going to lend her clothing. I mean, a lot of those dresses you see at the Met Gala are not their clothes. They're donated by, not donated, but offered by the um, couturier. And do you want to be the couturier who designed Ivanka's outfit this year? I don't think so. I don't think so. Don Jr., of course, has a different problem. He's the one with his father's name. What's his future after January 20th? Poor Don Jr. When his mother gave him the name Don Jr., his father said, what if he's a loser? <laughs> We've never forgotten that one. It's always worth remembering. What if he's a loser? He's a loser. And then the kid, he was an angry kid growing up. He was mad at his father for leaving the mother. He didn't speak to him for a while. But then um, sort of as his redemption with his dad, he was all in for the for the presidential campaign number one and presidential campaign number two even more. He's a good boy. He does what daddy wants now. But, you know, we find him now, sadly, thinking about the future with the name Donald Trump, uh, posing next to this. Uh, it's an incredible photo. You should Google it if you haven't seen it. Posing next to a photo that says Don Jr. 2024. You know, so he's going to be the next Trump running. For where, where where does this poster come from? Well, that's the that's the key thing. I mean, it's a very it's kind of a good poster. It's funny. He's in the middle of it. There are lots of flags and things. It's at a livestock auction somewhere in Nevada. That's where the poster has been put up. <laughs> it's not um, the place presidents are made, I don't think, livestock Traditionally, John. Now, let's not speak. This is the post-Trump era. It may now be livestock auctions in Nevada where our presidents are formed. So that's where Don's poster was. What, what's interesting about him is he's still on the COVID doesn't matter uh, war horse. And I think you know, a lot of analysis of what happened to Trump and why Trump didn't just sneak by Biden is his treatment of the COVID catastrophe. So I think Don's kind of on the wrong track. The Nevada Livestock Show, COVID isn't happening. I think he's not paying attention to what's really uh, important to Americans right now. And of course, there's one big obstacle to Don Jr. 2024, and that's Don Sr. 2024. One of them. <laughs> that is one of them. Another is the speech girlfriend gave at the Republican National Con Convention, which is Kimberly Guilfoyle. The third is girlfriend's legal problems with her uh, very vivid and volatile sexuality. <laughs> he has a lot of problems running for president. So I know your your uh, favorite activity of the Trump boys, if they're not doing politics, is off doing big game hunting. Do you see that in the near future of uh, Don Jr. and Little Eric? I see a long, uh, a long hike and a big safari in Africa. <laughs> and a lot and a lot of dead animals 
a lot of dead animals and a lot of angry people who didn't like being called people from a certain kind of whole country. Mm. So I think, uh, you know, maybe even Africa won't be so good. Maybe they can um, stuff the grounds at Mar-a-Lago with exotic game for these kids and they can go out shooting at Mar-a-Lago. Hope they don't hit Melania. Speaking of Melania, this is the sort of last but not least department here. Everyone wants to know what Melania will do after January 20th, and all my friends are hoping she's she's going to pack her bags and walk out and say goodbye to them. Well, it depends how good the prenup was that she uh, orchestrated when he was just coming into office and, um, and what the custody situation is with Barron. I assume she would have full custody of Barron if she actually got divorced from the president. But, you know, most of what I've been reading recently and hearing people say is that we liked to think she was uh, Rapunzel stuck up in a tower and not allowed to come out except for photo ops with the president. But actually... She's kind of on board with him and they, she has the same values he has. For all we know, Melania is already living in New York. Um, certainly she hasn't invited uh, Dr. Jill Biden for tea yet, the way, um, the way Mrs. Obama did for her, even though, as you know, uh, Michelle had a lot of misgivings about that. But she did do what was required of her. But this, this first lady has not done what's required of her. Amy Willens, always great to have you on the show. Thanks for today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Ella Taylor with Virus Time TV viewing. What to watch while we stay at home yet again this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. Ella, welcome back. Hi, John. Pleasure to be here. Well, the big one for us this week is the series of five films about West Indians living in London in the 60s and 70s, made by Steve McQueen, the black British artist and filmmaker. It's playing now on Amazon Prime, and it's called Small Axe. What did you think of Small Axe? Uh, that's Sir Steve McQueen to you, because he has a CBE, and uh, uh, which is Commander of the British Empire, and OBE, which is the Order of the British Empire, and now he's been knighted, which speaks to his abundant talents and the, effect, the fact that there are very few black filmmakers in Britain today, and we'll get to that uh, later. I am uh, mixed about the two episodes that I've seen, in part because I'm mixed on the films of Steve McQueen, who's made who made uh, Hunger uh, about the IR about the torture of um, IRA captives, Irish Republican Army. He made a film called Shame about sex edition, and of course, he made Twelve Years a Slave. He is a very strong stylist, willing to experiment in all sorts of ways. You can tell that. Um, he's also a painter uh, because his visuals are absolutely gorgeous, and in particular in the second episode here. 
but there is a, a strong whiff of torture porn uh, in his films. It's not just that he, I don't object to him showing violence because it's almost always necessary in the subjects that he's chosen. Um, but he seems to revel in it uh, and wallow around in it in ways that I, I find very disturbing. That is not the case uh, in the first episode here, which is called Mangrove. It's set, uh, the entire series is set in the West Indian community uh, of Notting Hill, which is known to most of our listeners as a meeting place for Hugh Grant and, and Julia Roberts. Yes. But, um, in the 1960s to uh, mid 80s, and still to some extent today, it's the home of uh, of black citizen British citizens from the various West Indian col former colonies, and uh, most of them uh, it has a very strong tradition of dance, um, of, of music. Uh, uh, and also of uh, poverty, but uh, this particular episode is about uh, the very robust tradition of pro police brutality towards this community. It's called Mangrove, uh, and it refers to a real-life sequence of events in which the owner of a restaurant that made West Indian food and was a gathering hub, hub for activists and intellectuals was heavily targeted and gratuitously so by the police. In the film, they're constantly calling them uh, black bastards, uh, people who have done nothing wrong at all. All, which led to a protest helped along by the British uh, Black Panthers and finally a trial at the Old Bailey, which is very significant because only the biggest cases go to the Old Bailey. And this has a very surpri um, uh, surprising result. The strength of the film is that it moves the needle from class to race in British filmmaking. Uh, we all know from Ken Loach and Mike Lee, uh, some degree Stephen Frears, the Angry Young Men movies of the 50s and 60s, um, that British film has always been hospitable to the plight and the strength of the British working class, mostly white. Along with Isaac Julian and a, a couple of others, McQueen has definitely moved that needle and focused very differently on, on, on race. But there's an emotional kind of homogeneity uh, that I think uh, results from faults in the script. Um, on the one hand, you have rage. On the other hand, you have rage and fear. And that's about all there is. Yeah. Most of the characters are talking in position papers uh, rather than, you know, living their lives. So, but at the same time, it's a great drama. The second episode is very different. It's, um, it's called uh, Lover's Rock. And it uh, is all about, it's set in a, one of the many blues parties, as they were called, um, which the West Indian community, unable to go clubbing, held in houses and charged a small fee for. Uh, and it's uh, almost a continuous round of um, singing, dancing is extremely sexy. Um, there's no question there is a lot of handling of rear ends in it. <laughs> it's really quite wonderful. But that's really all. You know, there's a plot of sorts, but it feels very grafted on. And mostly it feels like an endless loop of very wonderful singing and dancing. Um, the, uh, the choreography is terrific. The music is wonderful. The clothes and the habitat are all just wonderful to look at. But in the end, I felt it ought to be called the all-night party. 
I've only seen the second one, Lovers Rock, and I loved it. But uh, the other people in my house- household pretty much agreed with you. Like, how long is this going to go on? <laughs> it centers around a song, Silly Games, a 1979 single by Janet Kay. I knew nothing about this song. Now it's one of my favorite songs. It's The music in this is really wonderful and, and moving and uh it's a long night uh, with a little bit of a, a, a plot. So that's Small Axe. It's playing now on Amazon Prime. The first two of five are available now. What else have you? can you recommend for us? And now for something completely different. Um, the film Mank, directed by um, David Fincher, from a screenplay by his late father, Jack Fincher, and I highly recommend it. Fincher, of course, is a, a very wonderfully fluid director of The Social Network and Fight Club and, and others. And uh, the film uh, centers on a period in the career, the very checkered career of Herman Mankiewicz, a screenwriter um, who is most famous for having um, either written or co-written the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And social media has been alive with somewhat irrelevant and very tiresome argument about that, that evaluates the film in in terms of its emphasis on the fact that Mankiewicz really wrote the screenplay alone rather than Orson Welles, who, of course, uh, directed the film and offered it many gifts. I don't think that's in any way the point. Um, this is a portrait of, of Hollywood at a particular time when the studios were in trouble. Um, it was just after the Depression. And uh, Mankiewicz, who really set an extremely literary style for the films of the period, filled of, with wit and cynicism. There's some wonderful scenes in the movie where he's making fun of studio movies, especially King Kong, with uh, Ben Hecht and, and a bunch of uh, other writers. Um, Irving Thalberg is, uh, is um, heavily lampooned in the, in the film. And um, we find Mankiewicz lying down with a broken leg uh, from a car accident, which is actually another very funny scene, believe it or not, trying to write the screenplay. In fact, what he's trying to do is uh, steal some booze from a uh, locked cabinet that John Hausman, who is um, Wells' sidekick in this instance, he's his minder, has put at the other end of the room in a locked cabinet. And you can imagine how that ended. <laughs> Mankiewicz was a gambler, an alcoholic, and a studio rebel. Um, there's a very funny story that that isn't in the movie, but I must tell it because um, it's so funny. Which is that he was he was so misbehaved, in particular with 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 Mayer, but uh, with just about every studio head that that in revenge they assigned him the screenplay for Rin Tin Tin, which was not at all his bag. Um, and and in Counter Revenge, he turned it into a really gory horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of great acting here. Gary Oldman seems a very strange uh, choice to 
uh, to play Mankiewicz, but who was, you know, both cultured and literate, was a German Jew, a former distinguished journalist and, and drama critic, but he's absolutely fabulous. He didn't, doesn't put a foot wrong. Uh, he conveys both the urbanity, uh, the cynicism, and the, a man completely in the grip of, of his demons. I mean, Mankiewicz died at 55 of alcohol-related re illnesses. And uh, there are flashbacks to uh, evenings at San Simeon with uh, William Randolph Hearst, who's played by Charles Dance. Uh, and it's been really interesting to observe Dance's um, transition from a golden romantic hero in uh, The Jewel of the Crown to playing all these cranky old guys, uh, which he does to perfection here. And he was also in The Crown as the Earl of Manbatten, who, who is handily dispatched early on in the series. There's some wonderful uh, flashbacks also to uh, the 1934 election. The, the present in this movie is 1940, uh, when Upton Sinclair ran for governor against Frank, the Republican uh, Frank Merriam. Not only did uh, Mankiewicz support him, but he also gambled heavily on his lack of victory <laughs> um, and ended up, you know, losing much of his, his endlessly long-suffering wife, who's played by the wonderfully named Tuppence Middleton. I don't know <laughs> that name for my daughter. Okay. Um, and uh, it's elegantly shot in black and white, witty, dense, and a really marvelous description of the era. So that's Mank on Netflix. For the couple of minutes we have left here, I want to ask what you thought about The Undoing. That's the Hugh Grant murder mystery on Netflix. Everybody I know hated the finale. What did you think? I didn't mind the finale because I was right all along. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to say that for the rest of it, uh, The Undoing undid me and not in a good way. Um, and the interesting thing is that on, you know, most of my friends on, on and off social media seem to A, hate it, and B, compulsively watch it. Yeah, well, yes, my, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm one of them. Yes, me too. And uh, I thought it was just appallingly badly written. Um, you could practically recite each line before it, it came up. The acting is very good, in particular Hugh Grant, um, who plays the husband of uh, an Upper West Side therapist who's played uh, by the hair of Nicole Um She's a wonderful actress. She's just got nothing to do here except um, look stricken uh, and slightly shifty. And that was my other problem with it, which is that uh, everyone is wearing this expression that says, I might be the perp. Get it, <laughs> audience? Yeah, the, uh, basically the, the situation is Hugh Grant, who we all know is the most charming Englishman, not just on Notting Hill, but anywhere in the world. Could he be a psychopathic murderer? And his beautiful wife, Nicole Kidman, who has, as you say, the most amazing hair in the world. Does she really know her husband? And spoiler alert, why does their son keep the murder weapon in his violin case? <laughs> I, I did think it was a message movie. Uh, and again, a spoiler alert here, ladies. The message was, ladies, if your mother-in-law says your husband is a psychopathic killer, you better believe her. 
<laughs> I do want to just briefly call out, um, not call out, but uh, praise, come in praise of young Noah Jupe, who uh, is, uh, plays the teenage son who keeps the murder weapon, not in the library, not in the, <laughs> but in, in his violin case. Uh, he was uh, the son in the wonderful film Honey Boy with uh, Shia LaBeouf, and I, I think he's extraordinarily gifted uh, young actor. Uh, so that's a, a thing to watch out for. There's not much else to watch out for, except for the fact that I think that, you know, it's good viewing in the pandemic because you don't have to think very much. <laughs> so we've talked here about Small Acts on Amazon Prime, the series of five films about West Indians living in London in the 60s and 70s, made by Steve McQueen. We talked about Mank on Netflix, and we talked about Hating the Undoing with Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman, also on Netflix. Ella, thanks again for helping us decide what to watch on TV this week. Loads of fun as usual, John. Thanks. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.